Hi, everyone. My name is Anne Helen Peterson, and this is Work Appropriate, a new podcast where we answer your questions about the contemporary world of work. So this is an advice show. Maybe you have a question about how to reduce the number of meetings that are clogging your calendar, or maybe you're wondering whether or not it's actually time to quit your job, or maybe you're just trying to decide if it's okay to donate that hideous fleece vest you got as a work gift. Nothing is too weird, too personal, or too hard. Because even if I don't have the answer, there's a good chance my guest host will. Every week, I'll be joined by a new co-host with real expertise to guide us through these questions. Because the world of work is super complicated, often bizarre, never unexciting. And we have so much to talk about. I'm not someone who has ever been really interested in the history of work. Like, I've never taken a business class or even like an econ class. I don't have an MBA. I was a math lead in high school, just like a stone-cold nerd. And I then became an academic in film studies, film and media studies, and then I became a journalist. But when you look at those fields, you know, they have some of the shittiest work cultures out there. Academia and journalism, just garbage work culture. So I think I learned really early that any time that I felt like I was working all the time, that that was fantastic. And any time that I felt like I was resting, that that was horrible. And I just had this terrible, truly toxic relationship with work. Like, I remember working one day on Christmas and being like, this is really great. <laughs> like, I was writing I was writing a dissertation or writing an article and being like, Christmas, great day to work. No one's on the internet, can totally get things done. And I just, I'm trying to understand now, like, how I internalize that work culture. Why did I think working on the weekends, even though no one, not my boss, no one told me that I should be doing that. Why did I think that was so great? And why did I allow, you know, every hobby, every activity, every friendship that was not directly related to work to just die on the vine? So at some point around 2018, I realized that I was experiencing something. Like I just couldn't work the way that I had before. And my coping strategy for that was to try and write an article about it. And that article turned into an article about burnout and about millennial burnout in particular. And it's a burnout book, but really it's a book about work. And since then, I've continued to think about the history of work how work got to this particular place in our lives and what we actually mean when we say things like work culture or any of the other words that get bandied about in terms of how we work, where we work, why we work. So even though I don't have this background in business, I have spent a lot of time thinking and talking about work. And during that process, I have accumulated this long list of people, experts, who do have really interesting things to say, who do have things like LinkedIn optimization tips, but who more importantly are really equipped to give us advice on how to think about the nitty gritty components of our work days, but also these larger questions about where should work be in our lives? Why does work matter? Because the way we relate to our jobs, for many of us, it's the way we relate to our entire lives. It really matters.
for this first episode, I want to start with something really universal, and that's big office feelings. I mean, ultimately at work, we all deal with people, and people bring up feelings. So I wanted to bring on someone who I always go to for these types of big feeling questions. My name is Josh Gondelman. I am a television writer, often a stand-up comedian. I am a wait, wait, don't tell me panelist, and I'm currently kind of like between full-time gigs, I think. I mean, (laughs) my friend Dan Crone has this great stand-up joke about like, I'm between girlfriends, assuming I ever get another girlfriend, (laughs) and that's how I feel about jobs. Um, But I was the head writer at Jesus and Marrow. I was there for all the seasons at Showtime and was the head writer for the fourth season that concluded uh, recently and abruptly. Josh is truly one of the funniest people I know. He knows a lot about what it means to work in a writer's room and to be a boss in a writer's room, but he's also incredibly thoughtful and kind, just generous and an empathetic thinker, which is why I wanted to have him on the pod today. So I'm trying to let myself off the hook a little bit now because I'm really trying to like give myself a little space to think, and and I know that I will compulsively take on work. That's like a characteristic, a longstanding characteristic of my personality is that like, yes, people will ask me to do things and I'll be like, oh, that sounds really fun. I'll do it. Or I'll see an opportunity and I'll dive at it and not think about like how that affects the overall kind of mosaic of my schedule. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to really work on stuff that I think is fun and productive, but also say no to enough things that I like have space in my day to like not only like read books and catch up with friends, which I haven't had an, uh, as much time to do until recently, and, but also to like think about my own work and career in the long term and try to be like a little more self-directed about where I want to go rather than just like knocking on every door until one opens. Because I think hopefully I'm at a point that I can chart my own course a little bit more than like the last time I was actively looking for a job and didn't have one. Part of why I wanted you to come on the show today is because I think a lot of people, sometimes our our tendency is to really uh, always go for all of our worst scenarios and our worst experiences and our, our worst case understandings of how things could go. And I think that you have this energy and this uh, outlook on the world of like, it, what if it went really well? <laughs> like, what if what if it went in a way that we would all look back with admiration and appreciation? What if that's the way things go? I mean, I do feel I've like had some real good luck professionally. And I don't ever want to come off like a guy that's like, yeah, I'm like a straight, white, cisgendered, able-bodied man and all worked out for me. So like, what are you complaining about? But I do think that it is like when things go well, it is like a nice thing you can do is to be like an ambassador of gratitude and optimism in addition to like equity and equality and those kind of broader help and, and not pulling the ladder up behind you. But I do think like it is kind of a service to be like, hey, sometimes things are good and that's like, okay. Yeah. And I mean, you have a regular feature on... I don't know if you'd call it a feature, a thing that you do on Twitter from time to time. It's like, I'm here for 10 minutes for a TikTok. 
Yes. Just to strangers, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of them are professional. It's like I have this job interview and I'm really nervous. Yeah. And that's like a big one that I get when I do the pep talks. Because sometimes people are very – sometimes people are just like, hit me. And I just have to like come up with something <laughs> encouraging to say generally. I'll go to their profile or whatever. And then other times they'll have something more specific. And it's, it's a lot of job interview nerves. And I yeah. think like that is kind of like – Look, go in knowing that they asked you to come in. You didn't trick them. So unless you did, in which case maybe yeah. be a little nervous. Or you're so good at lying, just like keep on keeping on, you know? But if it I think generally, like they asked you to come in, be you. And if that doesn't work out, it's because you're not a good match with the people that are there, or they're not a good match for who you are, rather than the fact that like you aren't enough i think like it's not really about you is such a helpful thing to think about sometimes of especially yeah. like i work primarily in like entertainment and there's so many you know they could uh you can walk into an audition and they can just be like nah no beards <laughs> you know and you're like man i really thought i did a good job and they're like nope we like a guy whose whole chin we can see and it's like okay sure um and they might never tell you that you just have to know that you have the wrong face so this helps explain a little bit about why you agreed to go on and participate in this show, answering questions from people you've never met in jobs very different than your own. Yeah, I'm very arrogant. That's one part. <laughs> but I do I do have a lot of like, for someone who is like, at the moment, predominantly doing like a little freelance stuff, uh, a lot of stand up, I do feel like I have a bunch of varied work experiences in like, classrooms and offices and like non-traditional workplaces like comedy clubs so I do feel like I do work <laughs> I, yes. I promise I yes. promise I have jobs yes. I'm a professional at something I promise I have worked at jobs in I the have past worked and have advice to give other people yes. who also work in jobs same yeah. this is how I feel so we've pulled together a few questions Great. about this theme of big office feelings and the first is from someone named Stephanie, mm -hmm. and it brought up some uh, memories for me, but uh, we're going to have her read it here. I always find the end of the year or anniversary gift a bit of a slap in the face. I'd rather just get the money you allocated per person for the said gift in my paycheck. I know it's supposed to be a nice gesture, but usually it's something that just collects dust or I throw away immediately. Do others feel this way? Are these tokens of appreciation actually good for workplace culture and I'm the anomaly? Josh, before you answer, I want to know what's the weirdest or worst or maybe best Ooh. gift that you've ever gotten from work. Oh, I got sweatpants one year from a job, a sweatpants sweatshirt. And the sweatshirt, totally pleasant and wearable. I like it a lot. The sweatpants, they were like, what size are you? I said large. I could have gone medium. I've been going medium since then with sweatpants, but they are for a, the biggest person who's ever lived. Like, they're for... <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal. They're Shaq-sized sweatpants. And I'm just like, ah, well, I feel bad throwing them away, like this this write, this letter writer advice asker. Um, but I also have no use for them. I guess, like, if I went camping, I could sleep under them. But it is, like, truly a useless garment. Nobody I know is big enough to wear these sweatpants. Well, and I love, too, like, the idea of you're like, okay, if I donate this... And then it somehow ends up at Goodwill or a thrift shop yeah. or whatever. Who wants these shack size sweatpants yes. <laughs> embroidered with the name of my company? Yes. I used to work at BuzzFeed News. And BuzzFeed is interesting in that it starts 
were as like an upstart digital journalism site that was also a startup, mm -hmm. right? So it has like, I think some of the good and bad bits of culture of both. And the lavish Christmas present was one of those things. So every year we would get like, I don't know, eight to 10 pieces of BuzzFeed swag. And wow. we're talking about hoodies, mm -hmm. sweatpants, socks, multiple hats. You know, just like a piles. And you would accumulate these piles of BuzzFeed clothing. But it was somewhat like what you were saying that like you kind of wore it like the team sweatshirt. Yeah. And there was this idea of like you're on the team if you're wearing this. When, you know, a lot of my younger colleagues, especially people in their first couple of years out of college, they were barely getting paid enough to to survive in New York. So, you know, one of the reasons that they wore their BuzzFeed things every day was because it was a free sweatshirt. Right? Yes. And also one of the reasons why they ate a lot of the, the free food that we had in the office was because that made it slightly more affordable to live in New York City on $40,000 a year, which is like what some of the early employees made. The other thing that we received, when there were like rumblings of the beginnings of the what would become the unionization drive is everyone in the company received an Apple Watch, the first Apple Watch. Wow. Which, like, you know, that's a big deal. Like, it's hard yeah. to be like, screw this, I'm getting an Apple Watch. And some people definitely resold it as soon sure. as they got it. Yeah. Uh, but it also felt like bribery. Right? Yeah, definitely. Like, instead of coming together to push for, like, fair pay and, and severance, mm -hmm. <laughs> if they laid us off, it's like, yeah. take this Apple Watch and... And be happy with it. I feel like, though, when it's a company like that, like, this isn't the mob, right? You can take the bribe and agitate for the other things. And I think that's not unethical, right? If you're, like, a politician and you take a bribe and you don't do the thing, it's like, oh, that's not, come on, that's not the deal. <laughs> but with a company, it's like, no, you got to bribe me better. Like, that is that is the deal. <laughs> right. And in hindsight, I should have sold the Apple Watch. And instead, because I was, like, angry about the Apple Watch, but then also felt like it's weird to resell it, I didn't do anything with it. And now I have an unopened box for an Apple Watch, first-generation Apple Watch. And it's worth, I think, 70 cents. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think anything that you can flip is a better gift than something you can't like if they if you get like a really really nice winter jacket but it has like big company branding on it that's not as nice as just the winter jacket right because at the very right. least you can turn a profit on that and you're it's like they spent money on it and it's not just in the glorification of the company it's like actually a nice it's like here this is a thing conceivably you could want um and as long as it can't be, like, super traced back to you, you know, it's not like a one of one. <laughs> yeah. So, like, to answer our question, I think that it's really okay to feel angry and resentful about these presents, particularly if they feel unuseful and it feels like the company's way of deflecting from cost of living increases mm -hmm. Things that would actually make work life easier on a, an everyday basis. And it just feels, it's, it does feel like a bribe. Yeah. If it's not something that would be a good gift from like a regular person, it's not a good gift from the company. And in fact, even if it would be a good gift from a regular person, you're not like obligated to feel gratitude for it yes. because just because it's coming from your employer and they don't have to do it. I think like absolutely going back to what you said, 
it you can feel any kind of way about it. You are not a bad person for being like, well, this costs like $150 or like this cost $50. You know, you don't have to like feel like you're licking a gift horse in the mouth. You can just be like, I don't this is a this horse is a dickhead. <laughs> I don't care. Right. And also use that as an opportunity to think about like well, maybe this is indicative of of much larger issues at our company. And yeah. that, that, I think, is the moments when it really pisses people off because it's a symbol, right? It's like when my stepmom would give me Black Hills gold for presents when I was growing up. Like, I hated jewelry, and mm-hmm. I especially hated Black Hills gold. It's a, <laughs> anyone from, like, the Mountain West will know what Black Hills gold is. Uh, and to me, it, like, it wasn't about the actual jewelry. Like, I... People like Black Hills Gold for various reasons. It's it was that it was indicative of the fact that she didn't know me or know what I wanted. Yeah. Right. Yep. Totally. Work appropriate is brought to you by Smile Actives. Are you self conscious about your smile due to stains? Are your teeth aging you? Popular food and drinks are known to stain teeth. Beverages like coffee and wine stain them over time. So what can you do to brighten your smile? Well, you should give Smile Actives a try. Smile Actives is safe, effective, easy to use, and will keep you smiling proudly. 97% of Smile Actives users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades whiter on average, all within 30 days. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Well, before you visit a dentist, you should know that their whitening treatments can be very expensive, and it's not just the price. You also have to book the appointment and schedule time away from work or family to sit in a dentist office chair while undergoing the procedure. It's a hassle. Fortunately, now you can try Smile Actives at home or anywhere, anytime. Smile Actives offer a safe and an affordable alternative to those expensive whitening procedures. Simply add Smile Actives Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste. It's been formulated with PolyClean technology to boost stain removal and deliver active whitening ingredients into teeth, grooves, and crannies to get better whitening. Smile Actives makes a teeth whitening gel that you can simply add to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth. So no change in your routine, no extra time, yet people will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in just days. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile you deserve. Visit smileactives.com work to receive our special buy one, get one free offer, plus free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com work. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Indeed. Ambitious hiring goals for the last quarter of 2022? With a powerful hiring partner, big goals are no big deal. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that you can select for the skills that matter to you most. Customize your job post with a selection of over 100 Indeed assessment tests and find the candidates with the right skills fast. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at indeed.com slash appropriate. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash appropriate. Indeed.com slash appropriate. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Work Appropriate is brought to you by ZocDoc. 
If you're a big fan of it, sushi is incredible. But gas station sushi, not so much. Finding the right sushi makes all the difference. And the same goes for finding the right doctor. With ZocDoc, you can find the right doctor for you in your network and in your neighborhood. One that makes you feel like you're in good hands, you're supported, and you're heard, even if you're telling them about your favorite sushi place. When I recently moved, I spent a lot of time trying to find a quality doctor that was in my network, that was somewhere you know, within driving distance. It would have been so much easier if I would have had ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app that shows you doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, and are available when you need them. On ZocDoc, you can find every specialist under the sun. Whether you're trying to straighten those teeth, fix an achy back, get a mole checked out, anything else, ZocDoc has you covered. ZocDoc's mobile app is as easy as ordering a ride to a restaurant or getting delivery to your house. Search, find, and book doctors with just a few taps. You can find and review local doctors, too, and read verified patient reviews from real people who made real appointments. Now, when you walk into that doctor's office, you're all set to see someone in your network who gets you. Go to ZocDoc.com, find the doctor that is right for you, book an appointment, in person or remotely, that works with your schedule. Every month, millions of people use ZocDoc, and right now, I need to have a mole check done, so I'm going to find and book a quality doctor using ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com work and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then start your search for a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash work. ZocDoc.com slash work. Our next question is about the whole big feelings process of changing a workplace's culture. So here is the question from Lisa. I started a new job recently. I love this job. (laughs) I love the work. I love my coworkers. I just love everything about it. Um, My boss and I manage our organization staff, which is maybe 50 people. My boss hired me. She and I get along great. Uh, She's also relatively new to the organization. Before I arrived, my boss started to establish a detail-oriented and high-performance-oriented culture, which was a bit of a change. I want more help thinking about how to make sure the team feels like we have their backs. I want the team to feel like they can tell us what's going on. I want them to come to us with problems. And then I also want to maintain this detail-oriented and performance-oriented culture. These are not mutually exclusive, and I know that, but sometimes they can feel like they're going in opposite directions. For example, we can get a lot of haranguing when we give input on something or ask for rework. So I want the team to tell us if we're like completely missing something, but also start to adjust their expectations that this is customary. I also have truly felt at some points like this organization can be a bit resistant to change, like lots of people can, but as a result... I want to be open, and then also I think at some stage we might just have to deliver tough messages. Mostly, I think this is just going to take time and attention and communication, and I'm curious if you have any reactions or advice on how to navigate this balance. I want the team to trust us. I want to feel like we're all in this together, and I also really want to do great work. All right. This is a this is a hard one, I think, but also I think that, Josh, like I wonder if you have some experience or thoughts about how you have pushed a team like your team to deliver excellent work when maybe they haven't been pushed like that in quite the same way before. I think that one thing 
that is always helpful when you're talking about this? Because this is something that did not come up in the question. Um, and I wonder if it's because it's taken as a given, is that I think if you have to give hard notes to people or hard messages, being equally effusive about the stuff that they're doing well, and specifically the stuff that comes from their specific experience and taste and ability, uh, being mm. like equally encouraging and nurturing of that, I think is like is, is where I would start. And and not that it's like a bad question to have left that out but I do think like focusing on that right giving the like encouragement and like enthusiasm for people's good work in addition to like the kind of growth opportunities as you'd say in a um, performance review is like really important because like and it can feel like it's going by the wayside because you're like oh I don't have to worry about that and it's like well the person who's doing it and is receiving criticism is worried about that <laughs> so yeah, that's like totally. my first thing for sure yeah, I think one thing <laughs> that we sometimes forget is that a lot of people are really scared at all times about losing their jobs, mm -hmm. right? And they feel like they're doing an adequate job. And so the more that you can emphasize, like, you were doing a great job as described, we're trying to figure out how to do more with this. Yeah, when you're trying to foster, especially like, diversity and diverse experiences and opinions of of a staff I think like valuing what they bring to the table and not just like using people as data and then kind of puppeting them to make things come out the way you want them to come out right is like right. a really valuable thing to do letting people do things in an excellent way that is not the way you would do them is I think right. like really like high tier management that is really hard because it's hard to trust like well I wouldn't do it this way but it's but this is like a really cool thrilling way that this turned out yeah well and sometimes it makes me think of like how we have this expectation that everyone figures out a math problem the same way mm -hmm. remember how you used to have to like show your work yeah 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 and if you didn't do it the way that you were instructed then there would be points off for, for not following the order of operations. Yeah. A lot of people's minds work really differently yeah. than the one way that we teach. And if you empower someone to say, if you can figure out how you get to this answer, or if you can figure out how you get to excellent work, like whatever these reports are, like what the workflow is or what the, the way that you double or triple check things are, like if you figure out your own system and if you empower someone to figure that out for themselves – and praise them and give them the security to figure that out, then they are going to feel much more like it's their project. It's their excellence. Right. And they're not doing a karaoke version of what you would yep. do. And because yep. I think that is really demoralizing to feel like, oh, I was brought in because I have these skills and what I'm I'm a cover band now um, uh -huh. for, for someone else's point of view. Uh, I will also say building in expectations at the beginning, right, of like, this is what we're trying to get to and building in if there's going to be rework people knowing that ahead of time i think yeah. it is such a bummer when you're like i've knocked this out of the park and then someone else is like oh actually we need to like totally redo this part with these other mm -hmm. expectations in mind and i think like knowing that that's possible coming into it and like what might result in that other than like unsatisfactory work is really helpful so like going oh it might take the first draft to know what we want in the final draft and that's part of it and like thank you for your effort getting us to this point because this is really spectacular and really clarifying or going look this is what we're shooting for we didn't quite hit it so let's try it again and I think like it is 
knowing that multiple revisions are part of it and knowing that like what you're shooting for as close to what the final product is from the beginning is really helpful. Cause I think some of the most like I've been at jobs is when I did something and then you hear like after the fact, like this is great. You worked so hard on it. Actually, we're going in a totally different direction and now you have to do that. And it's like, you couldn't have decided that three days ago before I started. And I think those kind of conversations are really difficult and being really mindful of your staff's investment and time is really important. Yeah, that that to me speaks to disrespect of someone's time. Yeah, right. Because you need the job done. Offices are made of people. So it's not you're not dealing with a bunch of sims or like robots that you can like reprogram and nor should you be. And and I think to think of it as like, it's their whole day. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, it's a bummer to like go into work knowing that like, Oh, I could have just not come in Monday through Wednesday and then you could have just given me this assignment on Thursday. Right. If you would have just given me, equipped me to do it right the first time, I would have done it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that creates like a resentment cycle that's really hard to pull out of. People like to feel appreciated for specifically their hard work and what they do well rather than just like gold star, you're a good cog, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) And to feel seen in the work that they've put in. To see that appreciated. And there are some times where I've been like, hey, I think these two sections are like equivalently good, but maybe a little duplicative. And if you have one that you prefer, I trust your judgment. Yep. You know what I mean? Like giving yep, yep, yep. giving people agency. And again, not just feeling like you're shoving your hand up their butt and or like, I guess a less gross way is like ratatouilleing them uh, to, to the result that you want, right? Like yeah. I, I really think that the more you can give people the structure to succeed, to set their expectations for what you want as like clearly as you can, and then trust their expertise, the better an experience it is for them. And then conversely, right, if you give them all these expectations and it's too much, if you're just like, do it this way, then it's just like, screw you, you do it. (laughs) You know what I mean? If you're going to like stand over my shoulders making pottery like in Ghost, (laughs) and it's like, no, this isn't a collaborative experience. This is you being um, too controlling. So I think it's like that balance is really helpful. I think like kind of to sum up, Give people clear expectations of what you want from them, right? So that they know what the objective is and why there might need to be edits done, right? Or changes made once you see how it turns out. And empower them to do things that showcase their perspective, their expertise, and what they're bringing to the table. And that way, it's less like you're operating your staff like a machine and more like you're empowering them to do their best work rather than a photocopy of your best work. Perfect. Our last question is from Emily, who seems to feel a responsibility to speak up about her work, but she's also just really freaking tired. So let's hear from her. I work in advertising right now, and one of the things that I've butted up against in my career is figuring out when I should have a voice at the table and how to create room and space for that as a woman. I thought I would feel more empowered once I got promoted to a director level position, but recently I've realized that a title alone or confidence or more doesn't really create that. So my question is, how do you find the mental and emotional energy 
to continually advocate for your voice and perspective to be heard. Is it even worth it to try? Or does the fact that you have to push for that space indicate something more broken and toxic about the workplace dynamic? (sighs) Well, I think the fact that you do have to push and try is indicative of the fact that there's something wrong with the workplace dynamic. But I think that that's also incredibly common, particularly in any industry that is historically masculinized in some way. And it's also probably in most of these similar workplaces, it's also usually really, really white. So even in industries like nonprofits that are dominated by women, there's a similar feeling about like only white women feeling like they're able to have that space to to speak up and that sort of thing, no matter how high they rise in the organization. So I think part of it is just real structural resistance. And it takes a lot of effort to resist or to rework structures when you are the individual. And I think that that's why so many people who are marginalized in whatever way in their particular industry end up burnt out because in addition to doing their everyday work, right, whatever their job description is, they are also doing this resisting and rewriting and and rethinking work all of the time. They have to strategize consistently. How do I make people trust me, grant me the authority that they would automatically give to someone who is a white male in the room or a white person in the room? And then also, how do I make them not think just because of like the tone of my voice, the way that my face looked on Zoom, the way I responded to an email or a Slack that like that I'm a bitch and that I have too much power, right? It's just an incredible balancing act that I think is really difficult. And I want to just acknowledge that like that is a ton of work. Josh, have you ever worked with anyone that like has spoke up in this way and, and that you admire how they've handled it? Yeah. Totally. I don't have the first same firsthand experience, but I have seen four seasons of Mad Men, and then I didn't have cable for a while, so I missed out on the last couple, but that's fine. So I'm an ally. No. <laughs> um, one thing that I've seen that is really helpful is like someone who feels this way coming to people that they trust and that they they feel are good collaborators and saying like, hey, these are the kinds of things that would be really helpful to me. Especially if you're a person who is wants to encourage that kind of like speaking up from all the voices at the table, but there are louder voices than you. Learning how to support those things is really helpful. And I think it's not right that you necessarily have to coach people to be your cheerleaders. But I think that that can be really helpful is like talking yeah. honestly with the people that you trust and feel like you have good relationships with and can go like, you know, I don't feel like there's space for my ideas here. If you could help create that space for me by asking me for my input or seconding something that I say it so it doesn't get scuttled and shouting me out by name instead of just like, I, I think this and then getting taking the credit for it. It's one way, one avenue that I think there are probably people that are really open to doing it. And I will say if there is no one that is open to doing that because you don't have those relationships with anyone or if they're like, no, it's too risky for me, that does sound like an incredibly toxic place, like I'm an over the line toxic place rather than like you were describing and a baseline toxic place. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like just modern, modern workplace yeah. culture. Um, yeah, I think that in an ideal world, that person might be 
Emily's manager Mm -hmm. or Emily's mentor at the organization. But most people don't have that ideal situation. And sometimes, if anything, their manager, especially I've seen this with a lot of women, like there's a scarcity mindset, right? That like only one woman Mm -hmm. can be the, the like powerful woman in the situation. And so I'm going to undercut that other woman, which sure. is incredibly toxic and and regressive in so many different ways. But sometimes you can't trust the other woman in it, who's in the room to, to do that for you. And so I think developing that sort of trust and asking for low-key collaboration that way to say, like, to have someone else in the room that is looking out for moments when, say, you are continuously interrupted. Yes. Right? And to have the one who calls bullshit on that person, like who keeps doing the interrupting, to have that be another dude, that is incredibly powerful, right? Yeah. And coming from a man is sadly helpful. And then when it's on behalf of someone else, I think like redirecting of like, oh, I think Emily was uh, had a really good idea about that rather than just like, like the what what you want to say, right? Which is like, shut the fuck up. I'm talking. And so like, right. I think that there's a real value in having someone who in the the optics of the room like doesn't have the same skin in the game is like really helpful especially when they have like a kind of professional or social standing that that you feel like isn't being granted to you fairly yeah i do think that it would be important like let's say it's you and me in this situation Mm -hmm. and i felt this way that like i really didn't know or i was exhausted with advocating for myself but i hadn't told you about this yeah and you had noticed it and like you started coming to my rescue, mm-hmm. not in the w- the more subtle way that you were describing, but more in the way that I was talking about, about like calling people out and be like, you should respect Anne, yeah. like that sort of thing. It borders on ickiness because it can feel like totally. th- the guy is like trying to protect the woman. Right, right, so right, right, there ha- right. Like if you, if you were noticing that, the way that it, I think a great way to handle it would be you to approach me and say like, I've kind of noticed this dynamic. Mm-hmm. Is this something you're thinking about? Is there a way that I could be helpful? Yeah. Right. What I don't want, right? The goal is for that your ideas and perspective have space. Not that like I'm a hero or that like, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah. just like, yeah, I'm such a fucking cool guy. Um, <laughs> but that it is, you know, to create that space in the way that is most comfortable for you and that opens up a lane in a way that you feel like you can do your best work rather than creating like possibly like a self-aggrandizing self-centering conflict in the room to be like oh okay man listen up an ally is talking and i think that that's you know so coming from if there are listeners that like have that i think you're so right to like center the experience of the person who you're trying to like throw that alley-oop to rather than center your own experience of like yourself in that meeting And I think this extends, you know, we're talking about kind of a doofy male doing that, but it would definitely extend to, I think, any white person Mm -hmm. who's trying to be kind of like attract attention to themselves as an ally. Yeah. Have that conversation with the person that you're trying to make more space for and try to figure out how they would like it to be handled. Yeah. The other thing uh, that I would say is that like, yeah, it's really exhausting. And the one thing like, you know, our, our question asks how... Do you find the mental and emotional energy to continually advocate for this? Like, is it worth it even to try? And I do think it's worth it because I think that we are still doing that really hard work of resetting expectations and refiguring what power looks and sounds like, all of those different things. So it is worth it. But also, we don't have to martyr ourselves on it, right? And 
it does not have to be like, if I quit this job or if I stop trying to do this 100% of the time altogether, I am failing my gender or my race or whatever. Right. right? right. Like chalk one up for the patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm I got deficient. Too tired. Yeah. I, they, they broke me. Right. And I do think there is that walking that line and figuring out the answer to the question, like, is this place uniquely ill suited to offering me the kind of input and autonomy and agency that I want? Or is this a place that like there can be strides made because you don't want to bang your head against the wall right um yeah you want or you want to find a softer wall that you can kind of kool-aid man or woman through it why hasn't there been a kool-aid woman now i'm like just fully just <laughs> like this is a joke that is like so particular to like a certain segment yeah 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 that's group. true like we are just like elder millennial that's true ourselves all yeah over the, the place kool-aid there. man was a very central figure for elder millennials i don't know if he's still doing kind of amateur demolition the way he was back in the day but that is it, right? Like, I feel like if there was a Kool-Aid woman who was like, oh, yeah, and it's like, I'm leaning in, and they'd be like, oh, this lady, she stinks. <laughs> She's just breaking right. down our house. Whereas right, or she like, would have yeah. to, like, become, like, evil Kool-Aid woman, mm-hmm. right? Like, bez- like, it would be, like, Ursula. Yes, that's exactly like where she- I went to, <laughs> which is also the very same generation of, like, cultural reference in Touchstone. <laughs> All right, so in summary... This is a normal feeling because this is how workplace culture is often structured. You don't have to martyr yourself in order to fix it. It is not your personal responsibility to fix all of these problems. And it might just be organizational. And the only solution is to quit and find another organization that is trying to change some of these norms or another industry, sadly. Uh, But then also that there are ways that you can find people who are willing to play on the same team as you, right? Like there are people who also want the culture to be different. And so how can you seek out and trust those people to try to figure out strategies to do that moving forward? Do do you have anything to add there? Was I perfect? I, as a man, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is not my place to be like, yeah. And another thing, but I was, I was, uh, I think that was a great answer. And I, um, it's so tricky. It's so hard. Because yeah. you're up against culture, right? You're not just up against, like, one guy or a room full yep. of guys yep. or, or like, a, one company's uh, stodginess. You're up against, like, the expectations of society. Yeah. You're, you're up against, like, norms that have taken centuries to ossify mm-hmm. around how we think about women and authority. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's a lot. And, and and I think what you said about like whatever works for you is the right thing. You're not like an ambassador for everyone. Yep. Josh, I am so grateful that you took the time to come on this show today. Uh, not just because you made me laugh like at least 17 different times, <laughs> but also because you are a person who takes feelings seriously. And I really love that. Thank you. That's very kind. Again, I really appreciate that compliment. It means a lot to me. It was a total pleasure to have you today. And I will, I would love to have you back on anytime to talk about the problems of people you've never met in situations that you've never been in. Terrific. I feel (laughs) uh, it's, I love doing it. Love working with you. We'll come back anytime. I have a lot of unstructured time these days. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to the first episode of Work Appropriate. I'm so excited this is happening. And if you have a workplace quandary you want help figuring out, get in touch. 
You can find submission guidelines at workappropriate.com or send a voice memo with your question to workappropriate at crooked.com. Some of the episodes we're working on involve managing your time and energy as a freelancer, or the weird stuff that happens when you're starting a new job, or what to do when the work you love is grinding you into a pulp. Work Appropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Sandy Gerard. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Allison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow. Additional production support by Ari Schwartz. And special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismer. You can follow me on Twitter at Anne Helen or on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson. You can sign up for my newsletter at annhelen.substack.com. And meet me back here next week as we try to get to the root of why modern workplace culture is so hostile to parents.